Greetings, dear listeners. This is the Remnant Podcast. I am your host, Jonah Goldberg, uh, fresh back from Spain. We can talk about more of that later. This is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media, where you can go to dispatch.com and sign up for all our new le- newsletters and um, our floor wax and our dessert topping. And um, this week's episode is sponsored by the Online Trade Academy and by Ethos. More about them later. We have in our studio, um, through the miracle of, of perambulation, since he now works in the same building as me, uh, Matthew Continetti, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. And you are currently a contributing editor, editor at large. What is your title there? Founding editor. That's, that, that is my new that. title. Yeah, it's that like will your be... Super Bowl ring. You can never take that away. They, they can't take that away from me. Yeah. No. Um, but you still write for them on occasion. And... Write for them and uh, commentary and yeah. anybody else who will give me money. And you are a uh, visiting resident? I'm resident. You're a resident. I'm a resident fellow here at AEI now. And I, I, I should um, – I don't want to. I don't want to take any – gloss off of that achievement but i think irving crystal who we're both fans of was a visiting fellow he was something like 20 <laughs> he was. years he was. that's <laughs> like ramesh is still visiting ramesh has been visiting for about a decade now yeah yeah and um i have been involved with ai one way or the other for um uh more than a quarter century now and i have never been able to discern like what yes. flips the switch from someone being a visiting to a resident to whatever? And Never mind the, a scholar versus, versus a fellow. Versus a fellow. Yes. yes. No, there's so much AEI Kremlinology. Yeah. Yeah. But because we're on the inside, we actually know that no one knows how this system works. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's very strange. But anyway, uh, what we love the place. How are you liking Think Tank Life? I love it. I love it. I'm, um, I find uh, that I'm busier. Which is, uh, I think, a good thing because an institution like AEI has so many different people working on so many different projects and they, you know, they ask for your help or they ask, you know, do you want to sit in on something or join someone's podcast? Can you go on a podcast or can you talk to a person? So um, there's definitely been no um, slackening of of, uh, of work and uh, I'm enjoying that. Um, it, this is, it's an imposing place. So I've, I, it's it kind of I've never worked on Capitol Hill, but my, I, I think that working here is like working on Capitol Hill because there's there's just a constant stream of young people. Yeah. Going this way and that walking purposefully like they're on the West Wing. You yeah, know. No, it's, I was going to say it's more West Wing. Than Capitol yeah. Hill. And I have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. And they make me feel bad because I feel like I should be walking purposefully somewhere, you know, but, I think it's um, I think one of the brilliant things that they figured out under the Baruti administration here is. Uh, to hire a bunch of people like it's a Korean wedding and they're just like area <laughs> actors making minimum wage, walking around looking busy. Yeah. Um, it's great. So um, one of the reasons why you wanted to join the think tank life was to finish this magnum opus you've been working on right. conservatism for, right. for a long time. Right. And you've been working on it without a contract. You've well, been working on it for love. And that's why maybe working it is a uh, exaggeration. I mean, um, what I've been doing, at, and you and I have talked about this for, for many times now, uh, it, I've been spending the last several years kind of teaching, researching, reading, thinking about the history of the American conservative movement. And um, eventually that will be expressed in a, in a book. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm now taking, I'm now kind of been, since, since that project is kind of daunting to me you know i'm a you know mere journalist um my new project uh, or part is part of it 
And um, that is kind of a series of in-depth looks at one slice of this tradition, which is kind of the um, institutionalist, community-oriented thinkers, people like Robert Nisbet, uh. um, sociologi sociologists, social thinkers. And so that's what I'll be working on uh, at least for the next year, 10 to 12 months. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, when I hear you saying you've been working on this history of the conservative movement for so long, do you feel like the last researcher of the shakers right before they die off or, or maybe sort of like my wife who got her master's degree from SICE in Soviet politics. Uh, I right. think literally the week the Soviet Union dissolved. Right. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, do you feel like uh, if this is becoming more of a history project than you had first thought it would be? To me, I, it was always a history project. I, I, I think that the more I learn about the history of the right, um, the more I think the current moment on the right is, uh, in many ways, a return to its to its origins mm -hmm. um, in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and so I don't I don't necessarily think of this as kind of a abrupt interruption uh, after which things will return to kind of the consensus we we uh, inherited. Mm -hmm. So that's my big my big takeaway. I, I think there will always be conservatives, um, especially in the type of thinkers that I'm reading a lot these days. There's just something inherent in human nature. Um, you know, you like your family, you like your religion, you like your community, and you can carry that all the way up. Even I think the largest association one can identify with is the is a nation. Um, and that that's regardless of the electoral fortunes of of the Republican Party, that's that's regardless of whether there's a defined conservative movement that has a certain agenda. This kind of instinctual conservatism that's rooted in place and rooted in um, family uh, will always be there. The problem, though, of course, is that these institutions um, that a conservative identifies with are, are in uh, you know undergoing degradation i mean they're they're dissolving and so that that i think is worrisome because if you have um fewer and fewer people who do uh think in terms of family in terms of faith community um the the possibilities of a conservative movement um are attenuated but still though i think I, i'm always looking for new forms to emerge and i'm I'm obsessed with this uh, ballot initiative in the state of Washington last week where the state uh, authorities basically were trying to convince the public to undo their civil rights initiative banning affirmative action and racial pr uh, practices. Mm -hmm. And it went down to defeat. And this is because of the Chinese-American community. Huh. And you see their kind of uh, the potential for a social base for colorblindness mm -hmm. that that will continue right. that might not be located within the Republican Party but this principle of colorblindness still exists mm -hmm. so it's I'm I'm kind of keeping my eyes open for that what are the if if this conservative movement which we've been a part of is um coming apart if the Republican Party is a force that is is increasingly limited it seems to me um, to a uh, what is essentially a shrinking demographic base. Where will where will the where will what we associate uh, with 
the things that we associate with conservatism, where will they spring up? And I, I actually think there's some promising signs that they will spring up, just not where we expect. So it's funny you bring this up. One of the reasons why we're recording this podcast today is that I thought I was going to get the audio of my appearance with Dan Crenshaw last week. Hmm. And I was just going to throw some introductory stuff on it and run that as a podcast because it was pretty interesting. Crenshaw and I went to Texas A&M and he's been followed around by um, this new – I basically consider all alt-right groups to be flashes in the pan because they have all of the internal organizational coherence of various 1960s like weather underground offshoots. You know, they all – Everybody in the group wants to be the leader of the group. Um, but right now, you know, it's, it's sort of like Hansel is so hot right now. Uh, <laughs> this thing called the Gripers or something are, are the flavor of the week in terms of, uh, bigots. And, um, they've been showing up and they have an interesting strategy. I think it's a smart strategy where they ask very loaded, very tight, seemingly respectful questions in the hope of creating viral moments. And, and not to recount the whole story of this thing, but they came to the Texas A&M thing with, with me and Crenshaw, and they were at an earlier thing he was at earlier in the day. But one of the questions they asked was very clever. It tracked the – and if we ever get the audio, we'll play it for people. But uh, it tracked the sort of traditional sort of neoconservative, conservative criti criticism of affirmative action. And then it was only when they stick the landing at the end of the question that they say, which is clearly anti-white. <laughs> and – what they want to do is make it a power politics thing between different ethnic groups, right? And that's what that's what the fight against affirmative action should be. So remember in the nineties, Buchanan talking about affirmative action for Italians. That that's sort of kind of logic. well. That's why I'm, I'm that's why I'm here at AEI. No, it's actually, it was that it was that little program. But I, I thought it was pretty ballsy of you to wear that Chef Boyardee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I take my Mario mustache off when I leave work. But um, and so I pointed out. And my answer to this thing was like, I, you know, look, I was with you for a while in that question, but you sort of give away the store when you talk about it being anti-white, uh, you know, and Crenshaw was very good on it. He says, look, I'm against affirmative action and quotas and that kind of stuff, not because it's anti-white, but because it treats individuals unfairly. And he had a good answer to that. And I, and I said, you know, look, you sort of give away the store when you don't bring up that the most egregious case of racial discrimination right now is at Harvard against Asians. Yeah. They don't care about that. And so it could be interesting. I think you're right. You raise a good point. It could be that the the you know one of the reasons that classical liberalism has some staying power is that there are always going to be constituencies that actually want fair rules and um they just may not be the constituencies that you would expect mm -hmm. and but all right so i want to go back so for the listeners who don't know um, matt and i are among a very select group of a subgenre of nerds who really like right-wing conservative intellectual history and i highly recommend going back and listening to our first his first appearance on the remnant and all this but you said something was a bit of a nightingale song for me we said it goes back the current moment is going back to conservatism's roots in the 20th century i i, I desire for you to dilate on that some more, mm -hmm. so i may then pounce <laughs> <laughs> well and i think we touched on this in our pri previous uh discussion but um I, I, if, when you look at the history of the american right prior to the second world war um, it's very confusing. It's very confusing. It's very confusing. But um, one thing that uh, a lot of these writers in common um, had in common was uh, basically an um, 
an anti-internationalist foreign mm-hmm. policy. Um, and so uh, I see that in today's right, certainly with the president and a certain um, parts of the right that have been energized by his ascendance. Um, intellectually, um, it, it, the picture is muddy, but when you think about, say, the Republican presidents um, who were pr- in the period of the 1920s, um, they tended to be protectionist. Mm-hmm. Um so there you kind of see uh, similarities as well. And, um, you know, the Republican Party of the first half of the 20th century was, um, well, because it was not, and this is where it gets complicated is, and you're ready to pounce, <laughs> because it also had a progressive influence, mm-hmm. was also part of um, some of the restrictionist efforts. Yeah. So when I kind of look at the Republican Party of today, I see those three things reemerging. Um, and, you know, and it's not actually that surprising in a way because, uh, Sean Trendy, who's a, another AEI, uh, scholar put out a great report just last week on our website about, um, the similarities between our current period and basically the 1870s, the Gilded Age. I, I'd written previously on this and, uh, Neil Ferguson at Hoover has done work on this. So to the degree that our historical situation resembles so-called Gilded Age America, it would make sense that our politics would kind of take on uh, certain similarities as well. And so that's what I see going on mm-hmm. uh, in a large part of the right. Yeah, no, look, I think that's all there. Um, what I want, where I was going to go is that I, because, because part of the problem with talking about pre-World War II conservatism is that it seems to me there was no movement, right? There right. was... Um, the movement really starts with, you know, there's a reason why Nash and the conservative intellectual movement really starts with the revolt of the libertarians. He doesn't yep. even start with Buckley. That's right. And then he gets to Buckley and it's Buckley who imposes a semblance of institutional, you can disagree with any of this, uh, institutional organizational discipline on things. And there are parallel tracks, the, you know, the Irving track, uh, Irving Crystal, he's not part of the Buckleyites, but they're sort of, they're moving in rough tandem on a lot of these kinds of things. But prior to 45, you can basically find any antecedent you want for the position that you want to find, right? I mean, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing. Um, There were certain themes that were running around, but one of the themes that I'm increasingly interested in, which is one of the reasons why this podcast is called The Remnant, was there was a real strain on, you could argue, the right, which had a weird libertarian flavor um, of opposition to mass politics of all kinds, mm-hmm. uh, from Randolph Bourne, H.L. Mencken, um, Albert J. Nock, which has a sort of establishment liberal variant that doesn't come out until a little – well, the, there's also that stuff, that that sort of generation of progressives who are disillusioned by the war. Some of them go off to Paris and they write about you know, how they're disillusioned and everything. That was sort of a progressive liberal version of it. But against again against mass politics, and then you get a sort of an establishment version of it, like David Reisman and the Man in the Lonely Crowd and all that. But that's much later. And but there's a huge sort of strain of small C conservative thought that says both these parties suck. Both of these sort of these movements of right wing and left wing mass politics are deeply problematic, and a version of of they didn't even call it libertarianism back then. They called it individualism. Mm-hmm. Emerges from that that just says 
you don't have to pick a team. Mm-hmm. Now, I am very open to the possibility that I am doing exactly what I was saying others can do, which is picking the part I like <laughs> and finding it as my own sort of little spirit animal. And, right. But that's but that's precisely what I'm doing, and at least I'm yeah. omitting it. But it was also a very influential part of the intellectual ferment of the conservative movement that Buckley drew a lot from when he started building up things. But I just what I what I see about the beginning of the 20th century coming into play is a lot of the the stuff. It gets very complicated because progressives, when they go back and look at people like Father Coughlin, right? They say, "Oh, Father Coughlin was a right winger." Nothing about his agenda that was right wing. But there was something culturally right-wing about the frequency of that way. People associated anti-Semitism with the right and all that kind of stuff. But that sort of mass McCarthyite style of politics, which I think the right did a pretty good job of keeping in check for the last 50 years, seems to be coming back with a vengeance on on our side of things. And And part of the problem for the left is that the left has – Never noticed that it wasn't around for the last 50 years. They've been calling everything McCarthyite for the last 50 <laughs> years. So they have no credibility whining. They've been call- crying wolf mm-hmm. for more than half a decade about the, you know, the Klan is right around the corner. McCarthy is right around the corner about every little thing. But this time they're, they're at least half right on some of this mm-hmm. stuff. And I know I'm, I'm monologuing, but the, the, the impulse from some of our friends on the right and more of my former friends to immediately go to, Vindman, uh, this Ukrainian born yeah. Jew who works in the NSC council, uh, works in the NSC. He must be some kind of dual loyalty double agent. That was not a good sign, even though cooler heads prevailed and slapped that talking point down. The fact that so many people were instinctively willing to go there, that is a very early 1950s way to argue. And, um, it's the kind of thing that divided the right about the McCarthyite tactics on the right. Anyway. Well, well, you know, one thing that strikes me about the three figures you mentioned, Bourne, Mencken, Nock, they were unabashedly elitist. Yeah. And they're also very anti-war. Yeah. Um, and they were kind of um, pro-German, especially Mencken. <laughs> they, um, Mencken had his flaws. <laughs> <I'm not kidding. laughs> you know, um, and uh, there is uh, – if you think of one big shift that's happened on the right in, in this – large time span we're, we're talking about. It is, I think, the embrace of populism. Um, this shift from uh, elitism, a defense of a s- certain type of elitism to a defense of the people, um, an anti-elitism. Um, and this is this is a tectonic shift. I mean, it, it, it's happened, it, it took decades to happen. And even with people like Buckley, of course, you see kind of hints at it, uh, hints of it. Um, and this is the problem I think that the right has had, which is we've always been operating under uh, and within cu- cultural institutions that are dominated by progressivism. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to kind of say, well, the intellectuals that, that we disagree with, they're wrong. And that so easily turns into a kind of an anti-elite um discourse uh, uh, you know the famous example is buckley's quote about you know i'd rather trust the uh, first few hundred names in the boston telephone book than the faculty of harvard university um this is an early uh, this is the late 50s early 60s yeah. when he says this um so we've gone from a place where writers like knock and mencken and born were held up as kind of the models and even someone a figure like russell kirk was Pretty elitist, right? I mean, you know, walking around with his 
capes and canes and um, uh, going to Scotland and, um, you know, imbibing the spirit of the locks, you know, and um, L-O-C-H-S. Yeah, not, not the big. That's Those are the neocons or the, <laughs> the L-O, L-O-X. Um, that, that I think is gone. And so we've become much more populist. We've become much more anti-elitist. And that I think might lend itself to the type of politics that you're that you're disca- describing. Yeah. It, and it, it's, by the way, it's not a good thing because, <laughs> you know, a big goal, one of the big goals of the conservative movement once started calling itself a conservative movement was to convince the elite. Right. You know, I've recently gave a reading group here on Frank Meyer, who I've become more and more interested in as he becomes less and less important. Right. Yeah. Um, and Meyer says in a, in one of his classic texts, he says, you know, the job for the right is to confront the liberals at the very level of uh, their own intellectual pretensions, right? And that would that, that, that entails, he says, a complete reevaluation of the whole of 20th century philosophy. And when I read these passages, I say, well, I think that critique was made, you know, but was it made to the to the degree that Meyer probably had in his head? No. Yeah. And was it maybe put aside when politics became so such an uh, more attractive and in ways easier avenue mm-hmm. for conservatives to 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 follow? I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think so. In some ways, we've seen kind of the triumph of politics within conservatism because all of our energies have been spent there. Or the, the vast majority of our energies has been spent there. And yet we, we're continually frustrated, right? Because that hasn't achieved the, the goals at the outset. So we always hear from our critics, you know, what is conservatism conserved, right? right? You know, well, obviously I think that's overstated to some degree, but I think that's what they're getting at, that the, the, the emphasis on politics has made us conservatives neglect some of these deeper philosophical institutional problems that uh, concerned a lot of the founders of the movement. Um, on the other hand, we just, the right kind of, kind of like lucked into this uh, phenomenon, which is these conservative thinkers or rather these conservative political actors found themselves carrying great weight among the general public and among people who were anti-elitist and people who were ready to, you know, were not the types of peop, uh, figures that, you know, Russell Kirk would be, um, well, I want to, I want to sing out Russell Kirk because he, you know, he, he did have this side of him that, that was very kind of down to earth, but certainly the type of people that, um, would stand out, say in, in Buckley's Masonette on Park Avenue. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I mean, I, I, Jack will, poke me with a sharp stick if I do my party shtick again. But um, I think this is the fundamental problem with the conservative movement today is that um, – and it was a long time in coming – is that it increasingly convinced itself that it was a mass class of smart political consultants. And the the ability to monetize political talking points – uh, through talk radio, through cable news and all the rest, kept breaking down the barrier between the sort of intellectual side and the political side until a lot of people just convinced themselves that the reason why they're conservative intellectuals or conservative analysts is to help the Republican Party. And 
And when they when I say help the Republican Party, I mean help what is ever currently popular in right wing media. And um, because the Republican Party itself isn't a thing anymore. It's a vestige of a party. And uh, this sort of and there are a bunch of talk radio guys who are very good at it and cable news guys. Who are good at it. And look, I benefited from it as part of my, you know, it's a big part of my professional life. But um, and still is. I mean, but um, this but at some point. I think people – the wall just was so worn down between the intellectual cause and the political cause that people really didn't know where the line was anymore and they got really confused by it. And one of the testing points of 2016 was how many people were going to be you know, on one side of that line versus the other when actually forced to make a choice on that. And we don't need to, to, to dwell on that. But I think you're absolutely right on the you – know, it's an interesting line from Frank Meyer because – as a magazine reader, right, growing up, mm-hmm. um, it was really amazing to me when I f- went on my first National Review cruise when Bill Buckley was still around, right? So this is my first National Review cruise. My wife and I had our flight delayed, so we watched Al Gore concede from a hotel in Puerto Rico. You know, it's a classic <laughs> American story. And um, uh, um, So what, December 13th, two th- 2000? Something like yeah. that, yeah. And so I'd been at NR for a couple of years already and met Buckley a bunch of times, whatever. But it was my first cruise. And I remember sitting down and these were, this was a smaller affair on a fancier boat with, with a lot of high end, fr- you know, FOBs, not friends of Bill Clinton, friends of Bill Buckley. And I, I sat down at a table and for my first dinner and this older lady, very posh, turns to me and says, so what do you do? And I say, well, I write for the magazine. And she says, oh, what magazine? <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't expect to be famous now, never mind back then. But I kind of figured I didn't have to say I work for National Review on a National Review cruise, you know? Right. And, but it was, it was an eye-opener because then I, it became more and more apparent to me that, that uh, Bill Buckley's real – Fame didn't come from National Review. It came from Firing Line and his ability to hold his own with John Kenneth Galbraith and Noam Chomsky and, you know, and, and, and all of the sort of leading liberal and, and Norman Mailer, obviously, uh, the norm, the leading liberal intellectuals of the time. And he could out Latin pun them and he could out literary reference them. And it was at a time when a lot of the mainstream media wanted George Wallace to be the the poster boy of what it meant to be a right winger, right? This, this nasty racist Southern guy. Democrat. Democrat. Yes. We should always point that out. And, um, and here was Bill who was more erudite and more polite than, than the liberals he was dealing with. And that was an enormous tonic for a lot of people. But said so you could be sophisticated and conservative. That is a bygone world now. Um, and I don't know, I don't know whether we should get it back or how you would get it back or whether it can be gotten back. Well, it shows you a couple things. I mean, one is, um, just the overwhelming power of television. Yeah. It is the most important medium. Particularly back then when there are only four channels. Right. And that's the set, which is the second point is the consolidated nature of American media in the middle of the 20th century. So that even though PB, uh, firing line was a PBS program, that was like, Channel Four, right? You had you had the three networks and PBS. And that actually made it seem more high minded, right? Because it was PBS. And how actually? I mean, talk about the law of unintended consequences. Because PBS was a big project of the Great Society, and right. of course, what does it do? It spawns the great critic of not only the Great Society but also the New Deal to to 
to some extent, William F. Buckley Jr. And that's the third thing, which is just the uh, charisma of William F. Buckley Jr., especially in the visual medium. And um, I, I mean, he was a charming writer and a popular writer. There's no doubt about that. But there is something about his figure, his uh, physical presence, and of course, his uh, undescribable accent um, that just um, was extremely charming for people and kind of kind of you know clued them in it was kind of like oh this this is a conservative um who uh is erudite witty um charming able to talk to liberals or leftists uh again to go back to the Meyer quote at the level of their own pretensions right so at that kind of thing and obviously, you know, we've spent so much time saying this on the right. We'll just say it again. There's no figure like that today. Right? And I'm not sure the Times can produce one because of no. the structural nature of what Fractured median, everything like that, yeah. Um, though I'm I'm still working on my uh, sesquipedalian uh, obscurantism. Which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. like well, do you have, you know, the paradigm in your – you know, the par- Buckley always talked about the paradigm, um, which I think was a reference to when, you know, whenever he was asked how to define conservatism, he never gave an answer. But if they, you kept asking him, he would kind of inflict Richard Weaver's definition on, on people, which was conservatism is the paradigm of essences – Toward which the phenomenology of the world is in continuing approximation. <laughs> and so Buckley had that in his head all the time. And so he always talked about the paradigm, you know. Um, I liked in, uh, have you ever seen a dream walking? Uh, he had to give a definition of conservatism. And so he called it notes towards a working depth. I could be butchering. Empirical. Them. Notes, notes toward an empirical definition yeah. of conservatism, reluctantly given. <laughs> yeah, and there, again, like I said, there's no definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know what? There is a good definition of common sense, and that's why I want to talk to you about ethos. One thing in life is certain: expect the unexpected. And if you want to be prepared for the unexpected, ethos can make sure your family is taken care of, no matter what. You may be putting off getting life insurance because you think it's complex, expensive, and time-consuming. Ethos is a faster, easier, more affordable way to get life insurance to make sure your family is taken care of, even if you aren't around to take care of them. They're committed to finding the plan that's best for you and your budget, all from the comfort of your computer, tablet, or phone, in just 10 minutes or less. Simply answer a few questions online about things like your health, age, and income, then Finish your application to get a near-instant approval. Everyone's different, but a healthy 35-year-old can get $1 million of coverage for only 50 bucks a month. With Ethos, you can rest easy knowing the people you love are taken care of. Confusing terms and piles of paperwork not included. So, our listeners can get started by going to ethoslife.com slash dingo. That's E-T-H-O-S l-i-f-e dot com slash dingo and click on check my price again get a fully personalized quote by going to ethoslife.com slash dingo one more time make sure to visit ethoslife.com slash dingo so they know we were the ones who sent you um okay so uh we have a little time left and i wanted to get to we could do the punditry but we just had chris darwald in and so you know, he's my favorite pundit. What? What is the? Is it Naxone, the drug they give you when you OD on heroin? <laughs> um, 
Like our our <laughs> listeners have gotten enough rank punditry, and and we'll just stipulate you're very good at the rank punditry. You had a good piece about why Virginia is turning blue and all of that. We can talk about that in a second if you want. But so my friend my friend Rich Lowry was was on the podcast recently uh, talking about his new book, uh, warmly embraced by Donald Trump on nationalism and. Um, Oh, did Trump endorse it? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he tweeted oh, something. Oh, wow. Uh, I missed that. Thank you so much for talking about nationalism. We need to talk about this word more, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure. Because he actually hasn't talked about it much lately. It's funny. It's like, the word nationalism? Yeah, Trump. I mean, in any case. Yeah. No, I, I think in part because I think he's on a kick about talking about the word Republican because he wants everyone to have a sense of loyalty. Also, whistleblower. Yes. That's his new favorite word. We can, we can talk about that in a minute. Um <laughs> In fact, you said something on Fox News Sunday the last time we were on together about that that I want to, I've been wanting to give you grief about. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so, uh, so uh, you know, there's been a lot of reaction to that episode with Rich. I do not want to disparage Rich. Rich is a good friend. Rich has gave me my start at National Review. I have some profound disagreements, but I didn't want to make the podcast all about me yelling at Rich about our profound disagreements. I wanted him to make his case for his book. I owe him to that while making it clear that I had my disagreements and all of the rest. And I'm not going to sort of now lob at it. I'm going to write something more thoughtful and larger about all of this nationalism stuff down the road. But I did want to ask you, because we talked about this briefly, part of Rich's argument or part of the argument from a lot of the, the new nationalists on the right these days is that conservatism has always been in large part about nationalism, that nationalism is an important ingredient of conservatism. And again, part of, the, my, part of my criticism with Rich, and I'm not saying anything new here, is that his definition of nationalism is so unbelievably slippery that it just – it's sort of like the nationalism that he likes is really good because – and he likes it because it's good and therefore tautology, it's good because he likes it and he likes it because it's good and it's, it's good and it's no different from patriotism when it matters and there's the bad stuff isn't the nationalism that he likes. How come if, if that's even remotely right, if this idea that nationalism has been a big part of conservatism, mm -hmm. why haven't conservative intellectuals been writing a lot about it, about nationalism over the last 60 years? Cause you would think it would be all over the place unless they had an understanding of nationalism that is different from a lot of these people mm -hmm. about what it actually is, what it means. It's a lot of talk about patriotism, love patriotism. I like patriotism, but it seems to me the difference between – among the differences between patriotism and nationalism is that patriotism asks you to uphold to a higher ideal of something. Mm -hmm. It asks for a sacrifice from you. Nationalism doesn't ask for a sacrifice from you. Nationalism asks uh, – gives you confirmation of what you want to believe. Um, anyway, so where, where do you come down on the nationalism? <laughs> Other than extreme weariness and nationalism fatigue with the very topic. <laughs> I think uh, the uh, the main quote uh, that uh, new nationalists use when they say that nationalism has an anchor in the larger tradition of the American conservative movement is from Urban Kristol, uh, where in one of his essays, he says, you know, the three keys of conservatism are religion, nationalism, and economic growth. Kristol used the word nationalism quite a bit in his writings in the 1980s. Um, I think mainly because for the same reasons that he just adopted neoconservative, he kind of had that puckish sense of, fine, if you're going to call what I am describing nationalism, right. I'm a nationalist. It, yeah. right. um, there is a larger um, component, a larger portion of writers who talked about the importance of nations and nationhood, right? And um, I mean, that goes back to Burke. Uh, but even someone like Nisbet 
who was extremely anti-war um, and uh, believed that, like Bourne, that war was the health of the state, was wary of nationalism. Uh, even he says that uh, conservatives should have some type of um, not just loyalty, but you know, preference for nations and, and the nation and the national tradition. Um, that's so that 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 I think is is kind of the root of of a lot of this. Um, it's only in the past few years where nationalism as a category has kind of been rehabilitated and mainstreamed. And like I say, when when you do that, you you point to the crystal quote. That's really kind of the main the main one. Which is there's some fun irony given some not and I'm not mean I do not right. by any means means being rich here, but there are some people who embrace the uh nationalist banner who would very much probably not like to have a quote from Irving Crystal <laughs> as their rallying cry. Right. Well, and we saw some of that tension on display at the recent national conservatism conference, which was split um, between um, between factions and a, one minority faction was, you know, uh, upset that this conference on na- nationalism was, you know, co-chaired by an Israeli philosopher, Yoram Hazoni, right? Um and and Hazoni's influence can't be underestimated mm-hmm. either. I think he, um, even before the election in 2016 with Brexit, identified um, this this trend, which was, um, you know, which he described as nationalist and which he kind of related to Israeli politics and Zionism. Um, and you had a great discussion with him a while back as well. So what is it? I actually think it's... Um, it's uh, just another dart that uh, we're throwing at the uh, Republican uh, dartboard. Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And um, so is it populist? Is it nationalist? Is it national populist? Is it integralist? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, is it post-integralist? Is it, what is it? Is it, um, is it, you know, Bronze Age pervert, right? I mean, that's that's one of the uh, darts that's coming off from way uh from from the margins, and and so so nationalist is, 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 is nationalism is a term that um, people uh, that uh, you know a, a considerable group seems to have settled on, probably because the Republican president in office has adopted the term right, and he's you know he's gone from saying uh, he he says he's a nationalist, and his speeches the speeches um, that I think his speechwriters really work the most on, which is like, say, his address at uh, Normandy earlier right. this year. They talk about the importance With of- No Kurds in attendance, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the Kurds were not there. Yeah. No, we don't know. Exactly. Yeah. The Kurds were not there at the ceremony. Uh, but where is Mr. Kurd? This is- uh, Has anyone talked to Mr. Kurd? Mr. Kurd was the Kurdish reporter in the um, White House press corps that's been around since 2017. And- President Trump once referred to him as Mr. Kurd. Oh, I missed this. The question. Well, right. And, and but he, I, as far as I know, Mr. Kurd has not been questioned okay. since the since the like withdrawal. The reporter yeah. And so Trump for to President Trump, he's Mr. Kurd. Oh, yeah. so he became Mr. Kurd. I think we should do that. From now. That should be like I like I like <laughs> running on a list of Supreme Court justices. I wish the Democrats would do that. And I think in the press corps. We should just refer to people <laughs> sort of like in Reservoir Dogs. We should all give them the name with their last name being the country they're from. Mr. Azerbaijan. <laughs> Mr. This, is, this is how President Trump thinks. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, yeah. So so this is – I think that's a, a 
been a big factor in this as well. We try to, um, you know, we do respond to presidents. Um, intellectuals respond to presidents. We try to not only analyze and understand what they're about or the forces that caused their election. And by the way, we may end up overreading and overinterpreting that election, which is, I think, uh, uh, something that the right is probably guilty of in the aftermath of 2016. But we also want to say, oh, well, we want to be part of something. I think that's, I think that that's, that's, that's a factor here too. So this is what we want to be part of. And this is how we, we describe it is it's Amer- the case for American nationalism. Um, See, I'm not a joiner. So I just, I, I, yeah, right. right. Uh, by nature. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, um, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm still a conservative. <laughs> and I think, I think the lo- love of nation attachment to nation is part of it. Absolutely. conservatism Absolutely. but i'm not ready to abandon conservatism uh for for nationalism a better formulation to me patriotism is a better word to me um when you choose nationalism you're choosing to own at least some of the connotations yeah i think a lot of it is a reaction to this kind of trend on the left and the new progressivism to describe people as citizens of the world yeah. right and so then you say no we're not citizens of the world we're citizens of specific nations. And then it's also a reaction to the other kind of cliche from the left, which is, you know, um, America is, it's not a, it's not a place. It's an idea, right? So this is best expressed by Bono. Bono, This is a big Bono thing, but you find it everywhere. And so what these, George Will like double, triple down on that in his book. Yeah. So, so what these writers are saying is, that's right. It's not just found on the left. It's found on, on, on the right as well. But it's, these writers are saying, well, it's an idea but it's also like I, I think I think I've read these words from Rich recently, a bounded territorial entity, sure. which is a nice way of <laughs> putting it. Um, Maybe they also have gladiators. But then if, the problem, of course, the problem, of course, with adopting this is that there are other people who mean, no, it's actually just an ethnicity. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and that I think is uh, not only wrong, but it's a uh, it's a political dead end yeah. in the United States. It's yeah. just not it, it, um uh, it's 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 wrong to do, and it's also self defeating. And what, what's what's funny is to me about all that is that this white identity stuff, which came out with a lot of these kids that I saw last week. I don't know about you, but growing up, it was actually. I mean, I'll take it back for a second. There was a good piece in the Times recently, since we're talking about you know we're trafficking in the grotesque stereotypes of your people. Um, <laughs> about the long, hard road it took for Italians to be considered white people in America. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this tendency among this sort of white identity politics crowd to make it sound like everyone in this country who was of European descent of one kind or another saw themselves as white from day one. That white was a major category of self-organization, which would have been real news to the Irish to the Slovaks, to the mm-hmm. Italians, to the Jews. And so like when you say today that it, this is a non-starter, and I think you're right, that it's just – it's not it's a, it's, it's a losing proposition to talk about white – to nationalism as a white thing. It's worth remembering it was a losing proposition a hundred years ago when the number of Hispanics and Asians in this country was in the low, low, tiny single digits. White people didn't like – the idea that this of white nationalism, and so to harken back to some tradition of white nationalism in this country is is horse feces. 
Um, I'm trying to curse less on this podcast. Of course, the people making these arguments still don't think that Italians are white. That's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's completely, it's completely uh, divorced from every, uh, you know, a mainstream uh, discourse. I, I mean, I, this is actually just to return to something I was saying earlier, why I think the, whatever the fortunes of the Republican Party, whatever the fortunes of the American conservative movement happen to be, there will be something called conservatism. There will be something conservative about the United States going forward because think about the ethnic populations uh, that came in in the last great wave of immigration. Um, as you say, they were not considered part of the mainstream. They were not considered, quote unquote, white. And yet, as Eric Kaufman describes in his book, White Shift, mm-hmm. over over generations, they've become um, integrated and indistinguishable from from with the mainstream that they that they entered. And that mainstream itself has changed. And I, I, I think something similar will happen. Now, the difference, just a historical difference is, uh, obviously, because of the Depression and war, um, there was, you know, there was a 50-year period where basically there was no immigration to the United States of America. And that that made the pressures to assimilate, I think, even greater. But uh, the truth... It's Buchanan's best point on immigration, whether you agree with it or not, but it it has real explanatory power about the the, the melting of the unmeltable ethnics, as they used to call them. Yeah. yeah. Um, But at the same time, um, I think assimilation is happening. And I think the data shows assimilation is happening. It might be slower. It um, um, it might be um, not visible because of because of the, uh, the the our cultural institutions are so devoted to a multicultural narrative, yeah. right? And always want to highlight difference. Uh, we might not actually be paying as much attention as we ought to to our similarities across ethnicities and race. Um, but like the Latinx thing. It was great news. It was beautiful. Yeah. Totally. For listeners who don't know, they, um, they did a survey of Hispanics in the country asking how many wanted to or would go by the label Latin X rather than – and it's a grammatical thing. It's rather than Latino or Latina. It's a more inclusive term that's not gendered. And a whopping 2% of Hispanics wanted anything to do with that, right? I mean they come from a more conservative culture and they're not interested in the – the social justice stuff yeah. that these elites are trying to impose. They have lives. But of course, when the woke progressive presidential candidates do it, the truth is they're what they're really doing isn't appealing to the Hispanic vote in the Democratic Party. They're appealing to the highly educated white vote, right. Right? which for them, for those voters, yes, that's how you right. describe and talk about this group. Um, and also the elite, like remember the, the Harvard MIT, when the Harvard MIT stuff came out about the discrimination against Asians. Part of the argument was very euphemized. It was very difficult to sort of see exactly what they're saying is, but basically what a lot of these schools were doing, it wasn't so much that they were in their eyes, they weren't discriminating against an ethnicity. They were discriminating against a certain kind of student that just wanted to go to college for a career, you know, imagine money, yeah. right? To make their family proud because <laughs> right. they're the first kids in their family. How dare they? And and so Asian kids who know the shibboleths of woke culture, um, they had no problem getting in, and they still have no because they're supposed to be re- they're the model, they're the actual model minority, not the kid whose parents, you know, run a Korean grocery store in style, you know, in New York, and go to Stuyvesant and 
and want to go to Harvard because they want to get a career and do well for themselves, those kids are grinds and they're not committed to social justice. And the schools just happen to be discriminating against that attitude and it happens to be disproportionately represented in the ranks of the bourgeois children of Asian immigrants, right? right? I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, Okay, but uh, one of the things you can do to get around those kinds of gatekeepers is to use a product like Online Trading Academy. Beautiful. Let's be honest. Most people weren't taught how to invest in school. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered, why, why does Wall Street always seem to win so consistently? How can I do more than just buy and hold? Well, Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you a step-by-step process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. OTA's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your own home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 190,000 reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education could help you take better control of your financial future from now on. A strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. So, look, a lot of people differ, disagree about strategies for the for the stock market. I don't know necessarily that, like, if you take this if you take this course, that all of a sudden you should become a day trader. I'm I'm personally kind of a buy and hold kind of guy, but it does seem to me if you're tempted to take some portion of your money, some portion of your income, some portion of your savings. And be a little more aggressive in the stock market. It makes a lot of sense to actually know what you're doing and not just do it on a whim and not necessarily do it in conjunction with some stockbroker who's got their own agenda and about what stocks to move and what not to. I'm a big believer that in education and financial matters is empowering. What you do with it, um, you know, depends on what your personal needs are. So sign up for a free, free, that's free three-hour introductory class at otatrade.com slash dingo. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. That's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash dingo. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. Begin taking control of your financial future today. With no obligation, so uh, we should do a little rank punditry. You have to get out of here. Yeah, and that's fine. That's um, fine. So, um, the last time we were on Fox News Sunday, okay, yeah, yeah, bring it on, Jonah. It was before they released the whistleblower report, right? It, yes, it was just when we were just beginning to find out what was happening. More I think sometimes it, <laughs> more, it, it was a different. Yeah, yeah please continue. Um, I, I have and, something to say on this. Yeah, and so. Uh, you got the last word in on the Fox News Sunday panel, mm-hmm. and Chris Wallace asked you, went around the horn, should the White House release the whistleblower report? And you said, words to the effect, and we can go to the tape if I get this wrong. You said, words to the effect of, if it helps President Trump, he should release Yes, yes, I did say that, yeah. Uh, so, a couple questions. One, what was the 
what, what was the principled rationale for, for, for that argument? And two, do you think it ended up helping? Well, when Chris Wallace asks you a question and you have a producer saying you have 30 seconds to answer it, um, principled rationales don't always factor in. One tends I'm to discharged. I one, one tends to go to one's default mode of analysis, and for me, that's just simple political Machiavellian uh-huh. calculation. And so that's why I said that that it would help him. Uh, to if it helped him, then they would release it. That's kind of how I think I I intended to to phrase it. Um, has it helped him? It depends a lot on where you think we stand. Uh-huh. And I think it has helped him in this sense. It's given him a basis for his description of the call as perfect and beautiful. Is that a and just, description you subscribe to? <laughs> yeah, here, here I have to distinguish. <laughs> here I have to distinguish between the call and what was going on and what we've learned since the transcript was released. Okay. 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 So I'm, I'm confessing what the context is, what, what variables you can remove to make that call perfect. But the, on, on. I'm not saying it's perfect. <laughs> well, I, I'm saying that was the question I asked you. Would I just, do I talk in the same way as Donald Trump? <laughs> no. The call itself, I found, um, it was obviously, I believe it was inappropriate to bring up Biden in the course of the phone call. It's unclear to me who actually brought up Biden, because if you read the transcript, it does seem that Zelensky says, oh, yeah, and Hunter Biden, too. Right. What Trump brings up, the favor that Trump refers to in the phone call is the Durham investigation. And there, I think it was appropriate for the president to tell a foreign leader, work with my attorney general on this case. We can disagree about whether the case is necessary or not. But that I thought was appropriate. It was inappropriate to talk about Biden on the phone call. What does seem to be more inappropriate is if it's, you know, is what we see of a policy to condition aid on the announcement of an investigation into a political opponent. Mm-hmm. And that I think, I, I mean, I, I can't defend that and I haven't defended mm-hmm. that. Um, right. So that's where I think things stand now. The revelation since the whistleblower and the phone call have been more, have hurt Trump's public case. Uh-huh. I mean, Trump's political standing has not changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing about this. this is why actually I find that it's it's more helpful for him to be concentrated on impeachment because if he didn't have impeachment to get angry about and fight about, we might still be going after, you know, Elijah Cummings's a widow or something, yeah. you know, or we might be going after Sharpie. <laughs> Well, Sharpie Gate was great. I was right. Fine. Sharpie Gate would be the best, more innocent. Well, trust me, we're going to have a lot more like that in the years to come, in the year to come, because possibly years to come. So that's where I think things stand. What's fascinating to me is the whistleblower, the president's, one of the president's favorite words right now, it played a, played a key role here because he, he knew that the policy disagreements and the personal discomfort discomfort with what was going on in the White House pro- would not have surfaced, but for the lodging of this complaint with the DNI and all of the interesting legal discussions that uh, that ensued. Um, so we are where we are. You know, I mean, he's going to be impeached. Um, so, do you think just uh, just for giggles? Um, do you think uh, the whistleblower that you think Invocations of the Sixth Amendment are particularly useful in discussions of impeachment inquiries in the House. 
no. Uh, no yeah, I don't I don't think that's I mean but this is not but it's not nothing nothing is responding to rational signals here, uh-huh. right? This is just it, it, at the end of the day and this is one of one of my concerns about America today. It's just power politics. Yeah. Well, and, it's and, I, and, by the way Right. It's kayfabe and power politics yeah. on both sides, by the oh, way. No, you know I, what I mean? I, I, I it's like, like, oh, I love these Democrats when they get in, in the media and they, you know, or they make an announcement. And say, you know, it's with the. I'm just so sad to say that I believe Donald Trump should be impeached. Yeah. Please spare me the crocodile tears. This is all talking points that that the uh, the D trip wrote out for you. You know, yeah. So the clearly the Republicans are just and the president as is his nature, is pursuing a throw-everything-at-the-wall strategy. Uh-huh. And and as long as we maintain our base, we'll be fine. And um, that seems to be what's happening right now. I think we're headed toward a partisan vote in the House and a short trial in the Senate. I think as analysis, that's, that's largely correct. One could have a sort of Council of Nicaea kind of... <laughs> Arguments about some of these issues, about the transcript and whatnot, but why would we do that? And uh, my only thing is is that, like, I have a real problem with the expectation that – I'm not – this is not about you. It's about these – a lot of our colleagues in the right-wing media who think it's their job to be part of the kayfabe. And for those of you who don't know, kayfabe is – from professional wrestling, it's um, it's an ambiguous moment of scripted reality where you don't know for sure whether it's all fake or or real. I mean, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's the show. It's the show, right? And um, um, when I see lawyers, professional lawyers who are also pundits, we won't have to get into names, talking about the the Sixth Amendment in House impeachment inquiries. There are only two possibilities. Either they're really bad lawyers or they're deliberately lying for the sake of the cause. Now, some lawyers, when they're doing it on behalf of a client. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good lawyer, right? Yeah, so to do, Giuliani, he gets a pass from Make him. any argument I mean, for the client. Ar- they're bad arguments, but they, they might be – they're bad legal arguments, but they might be good political arguments. But like – what's his face? Uh, Kurt Schlichter? Is that how you pronounce it? He's just – he is one of the kayfabe guys in the audience who jumps in the ring, right? And and you, you find more and more people sort of whining. Th- this is sort of gets to my point from earlier about the erosion of the line between being – forget conservative intellectual, just a freaking journalist, right? A conservative journalist and being a participant. And and I was never a stickler about this. I mean there are a lot you – know, William F. Buckley, Irving Crystal, all, a lot of my heroes went back and cross, forth across those lines those lines but the institutions and were strong enough and the media culture was consolidated enough that the system could kind of handle it in a way and now none of that infrastructure exists intellectual or physical and everybody wants to be a player and then run back and hide and pretend oh i'm just being an analyst and to me yeah pick a lane well you can i mean because i mean the the rewards of appealing to a very small portion of the population are just incredible. I mean, yeah. just the adulation you can receive for making certain arguments. Um, now, look, I do think there's something to to the idea that the Democrats have not followed the procedures of the previous two impeachments. And it's worth 
it's worth criticizing them for that. And also, worth, by the way, if you do support impeachment, you would want it to be legitimated in the eyes of the public. And, that, and, and the steps that they have taken, I do not think, help that. And then that raises the question of what actually is going on here. Our uh, friend Adam White has made that point for you know, well, and I agree uh, with that. A question I don't actually... I don't even know the answer to that question. I don't even know whether they're going to vote for I assume they're going to vote to impeach him in the House. But sometimes you just – I'm like, OK, what, what, you know, how, who are they calling for the public? With public hearings start this week that we record this, who's it going to be called? I, I saw today that um, Vindman isn't being called yet or, you know, and will Bolton ever be called? It's unclear. I'm does Bolton want to be called? That was some kind of <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like what's going on. Um, the most desired guest I have for this podcast. Yeah, I know totally. I think um, so. The process to me as an analyst is bewildering at times, and so that's why I've kind of just tried to take a step back and think, okay, well, what's going on here in terms of just pure politics? Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, I know you have to go and do important thinking. An AI thing. No, I have another AI meeting. This is what I mean. I'm running to AI meeting to AI meeting. At some point, I'll give you a more of my ample advice about time management here at AI. <laughs> uh, I need it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Matt Scottinetti, uh, thanks so much for coming back on, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jonah. All right, so Matt Continetti has, has left the studio, but not the building. And, um, you know, sometimes I get grief from people for having too many AI people on. And all I can say is, bah, I love my AI colleagues. I don't, I barely have a fraction of them on. I should, in fact, I should have more of them on. Uh, some of our most popular shows have been with some of our, my AI colleagues. But it's also just, uh, it's, you know, part of it is convenience and part of it is I believe that this is the best think tank in the country. And you put the two things together and it works out pretty well. We've had people from other think tanks on here as well and we'll be branching out even more in the new year. Anyway, any uh, uh, takeaways from my conversation with Matt? I like his cheery detachment from the news cycle. I think it is worthy of emulation. Yeah. No, he 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 manages – I'm sure there's a dozen different versions of this from Mencken to Murphy's Law about if you if you always expect the worst, you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a certain amount of that in the way Matt approaches a lot of this stuff. But uh, and Matt's done better than a lot of people at sort of staying in his lane. There are a lot of people who don't want to be um, in any specific. They want to they want to pick their lanes based on the situation uh, more than anything else. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, uh, did you know about the Groypers before the last 10 days or so? Nope, not this particular incarnation of, a, of the phenomenon of which I'm aware. Yeah, so uh, Matt, Sheff Matt Sheffield had an interesting thread on Twitter, which we can link to. I disagree with some of the ad hominem stuff about some people but in there, but it was a good little sort of explanation. Part of the, I guess, the head of this inchoate, movement has some pop podcast on national populism and um the gist of it is that they're the flavor of the week and i don't expect it'll last long but it was it was it was interesting i mean i one of the points that sheffield makes is that a lot of people on the right don't know how to argue with nativists because they've always, the right has for so long sort of staked out a sort of stalking horse nativist or quasi-nativist position 
and as sort of gone as extreme to sort of the, the, the nativist populist stuff as respectable society will allow. And they've never really been pushed from people that were further out from the right. It's an interesting point for some people, some of my colleagues, I'm sure that's true. But, you know, from the earliest days of National Review Online, um, I've been dealing with these people uh, from the earliest days of VDARE, which is this website that is dedicated to the memory of the first white girl born in America. And they use, they always used to call uh, National Review Online Goldberg's Review as a way to put sort of stink on it. And so it's kind of it, – to me, it's kind of interesting that these people that were effectively quarantined from polite society – because of the digital revolution and the internet and all the rest, they can now make inroads in ways that would have been much more difficult for them, you know, even 15 years ago. But I also think that, that you can't let the right off the hook entirely for creating a permission structure, an environment that made these people think that they had a moment to seize upon. And that was certainly true in the early days of the Trump administration. And, you know, and good for the Trump administration that it kind of like realized that that indulging the 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 alt-right was a loser's bet for them. And they kind of kept them at arm's length after an initial flirtation with them. But um, um, I'm just I don't know where this all plays out. So anyway, I came from Spain, landed yesterday. Uh, Jack, I know you spent a lot of time in Italy. Mm -hmm. You should go to Spain. There's a lot of cool Roman stuff in Spain. And uh, I'm a little embarrassed to discover that this town where my daughter is spending her entire junior year of high school, um, Zaragoza, um, is just a – maybe you know – what is the word for something that started as a one pronunciation but becomes bastardized over time or changed over time? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. Um. There is a word for it, but I'm yeah, blanking on what it I is. I am too. But anyway, Zaragoza is actually a time-worn uh, abbreviation or bastardization of Caesar Augustus. And the town was actually named after Caesar Augustus because it was a vassal state. Or what the, what the, I watched this, this, this video in this Roman ruin, ruin over the weekend and uh, – they kept calling it an, an immune colony. Is that a phrase you know? I've never heard of it. Sounds like some sort of disease term. Yeah, you know, it does. And um, it's like, okay, we found the people who can't get the rage virus. Let's all put them in this one place. But it was funny. One of the things. So my daughter and I were in this this uh, uh, this this ro old ro the old Roman market has become sort of a small museum thing, and we're watching this video, which is narrated by the river that goes by the, goes by. And well, hold on. What metaphorically, like it's like written from the perspective of the river. I have been sitting here for a long time, oh. sort of like I pen, I river instead of I pencil. And um, okay, and I guess the river is the Ebro or Erbro, which is again a bastardization of Tiberius. Oh, and uh, or something like that. And uh, but it's funny. It's like going back to my days in Prague after college. It always amazes me that professionals get let really bad translations into English, make it into final products. Like I remember the one that always comes to mind is when I was in um, in Prague. It was a really fancy restaurant. 
and had the English translations of the dishes. And one of the English translations was, this dish has all of the smell and taste associated with used meat, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was not what they wanted to actually convey, you know, um, but uh, the, just the grammar and syntax of this, this, this video on the English subtitles was so bad. And a 10 year old English, you know, a 10 year old, I mean, a 10 year old, a 10th grader in high school could have improved the quality like two orders of degree if they just looked at it. But anyway, Zaragoza was great. We had a really lovely time. It was so, uh, one of the reasons I'm sort of giddy and loquacious rather than morose and loquacious, which was my normal mode, um, is it was just so wonderful to see my daughter and to see that she's doing much better than she let us believe she was. And it turns out that the tendency that my daughter had in what, when she lived with us in Washington, D.C., to only give us the bad news about what was going on at school um, applies across the Atlantic as well. And things are going better for her once we actually saw how she lives over there. But uh, anyway, that was all great. Did I miss anything exciting here, Jack? Uh, how come you didn't run in the New York City Marathon, by the way? What's wrong with you? <laughs> can't run every marathon. Um, there's too many. You may you may have missed my National Review debut, but I know you didn't because you retweeted it. I tweeted it. I still haven't read it yet. I saw it um, either late last night or first thing this morning, but very exciting. With a former intern of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, what do you think? Because you, many years ago, took a similar position, uh -huh. which you have since recanted quite vociferously in your day-to-day. -day All right. Well, why what, don't what, you explain for the listeners what your position is, and then I will uh, respond. Gladly. <laughs> uh, so uh, there is an emerging meme. I'm going to call it a meme uh, on the right that there is something – there's something like dispositionally conservative and not even dispositionally philosophically conservative about smoking cigarettes. And I just don't see it. Uh, there's like make a case that it's uh, an anti elitist activity, a democratic activity, um, a sort of manly activity, one that gives you greater wisdom, uh, one that, owns the libs and i i just think it fails in every regard uh and it's really all of these are just excuses for self-indulgence which is fine but the people many of the people who are making these arguments and then i think failingly and then who then who then resort to the typical argument for hedonism are people who would not argue for hedonism or for selfish individualism in other contexts uh like these uh, people of the first things crowd mm -hmm. who are like anti-individual autonomy in almost every circumstance, except for cigarette smoking. And if that's your exception, I have to wonder like why, hmm, strange that this is the thing that you carve out a niche for in your philosophy. Maybe it's just because this is something that you are addicted to doing. So maybe you should just say that instead of trying to dress it up in something else. Yeah. So, so we're on the same page and, um, uh, what you what Jack was referring to moments ago is that I wrote this piece for the Wall Street Journal, I don't know, in 96, something like that, criticizing the rage for cigars among 20-something conservatives in Washington. But uh, – and now – and Jack wants to call out my, my – hypocrisy is the wrong word, but my about face because I like cigars now. Well, first of all, I'm a fat middle-aged man. I'm allowed to like cigars now. Uh, but second of all, okay. Um, but second of all, no. But more broadly, it was part of a much broader 
epidemic of asininity on the right where you had all of these young people wanting to uh, first of all, who weren't actually conservative, but because conservatism was like cool and powerful because the contract with America, Republicans had taken back the House for the first time in 40 years. And so there was this rage for this kind of stuff. There were an enormous number of people who wanted to sort of do the conservative intellectual version of Civil War reenactment stuff and uh, wear fedoras and smoke cigars and and only listen to jazz and do all of these other things that were allegedly uh, countercultural, but in a sort of hipster way. And it was a very annoying time. Um, and I guess this gets to my point with Connetti is that I've, I've, I've never been a joiner. And I have no problem with people who want to smoke cigarettes if they want to smoke cigarettes. If you're smoking cigarettes to be cool, that is a very old story and very dumb. And the same thing goes with cigars. To see, you know, in the 1990s, these very attractive women tears coming out of their eyes, clearly hating smoking these things, but they think that that's what the cool kids are have to do. That's what annoyed me. And, and so, you know, like I grew up around cigarette smokers. I have very little romance about cigarette smoking, but I also think that, that, that being free to do it is something that, you know, should be allowed in this country is much the same thing as vaping, but I have very little nostalgia for it. I think airbrushing it out of old movies and comic strips is disgusting. Um, have you seen this thing that now the, one of the warnings you get on movies is? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm the one who told you this. Yeah, is that right? Okay. Smoking. Yeah. Um, it means that like every Disney animated film released before 1960 should be rated R. Yeah. Um, they're, they're chain smoking in those movies. I mean, I, I watched on the flight back, I watched Casablanca for the first time in like 15 20 years. Did your clothes smell like cigarettes afterwards? Almost. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, like, you know, bef like right before people kiss, they're like, take a big drag <laughs> on cigarettes. But anyway, I will I will definitely check out the piece. Congrats on being in the pages of NR. It's an important milestone. Is it? And it's in the print? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. We get art. We got Roman Gen art. Yeah, it makes sense. It would be if it has. I saw the art on Twitter, so it must be in the in the magazine. Um, so anyway, this will probably this podcast will probably come out end of day today, first thing tomorrow. Yeah, thereabouts. Like so I will be at the University of Wisconsin Madison tomorrow, Wednesday night. If this new Arctic thing doesn't screw up all the flights, yeah, I was going to say where winter has already begun. Um, and I will, uh, and allegedly. These alt-right kids are going to show up, or at least they were passing around information to show up on this thing, and I'm sure the campus is delighted. Um, but if you're in the area and want to come by, please do. It's always better to have more friends in the audience, audience than enemies. And uh, I'll be on Fox News Sunday this Sunday. And is that when they air that? That is. It's weird. It's ironically titled Fox News Sunday on on, on Wednesdays. And... Uh, other than that, is there anything else that we uh, have a pressing need to announce? I, I'm in such a weird place because I haven't been disconnect, this disconnected from the news in a long time. I didn't write a column last Thursday for the syndicate, and I didn't write my LA Times column yesterday. And this is probably the first time I've gone without writing two columns in a row in years. And I just, I feel, and I'm so giddy about my daughter, and I'm so happy to see my dogs and be home that, uh, I feel like Morgan Freeman should just be narrating the rest of my day. So, uh, and I don't know what we're going to do for the second podcast this week because I'm going to be on the road a bunch, but we'll figure all that out. So anyway, without all that. If, or maybe you'll be on um, on a snowmobile. 
I might. Well, I'm going to be going from Madison to to Vegas, um, hopefully, um, uh, and hopefully it'll be a little warmer in Vegas, and I'll be able to smoke cigars with all the cool kids there. Um, uh, best way to own the libs, I guess. Uh, yeah, but the thing is, like as I've written many times in many different places, you know, I do not see smoking cigars as a as a own the libs kind of thing. Um, uh, I see smoking cigars, first of all, as I find it enjoyable. I do it too much and I'm trying to cut back. But, um, you know, one of the, when I wrote that piece, Democracy and the Tobacconist, about my cigar shop in Washington, D.C., um, I made the point that, that my tobacco shop is actually the most democratic, small d democratic thing I do. And I wish I could hang out there more. I miss it because it, it's people from a really diverse walks of life who hang out in there. And the only unifying theme is that they like cigars. So you have liberals, you have conservatives, you have African-Americans, it's you're white people, you have everybody in there. And it's, it's, it's the opposite of owning the libs. It's actually having conversations with the libs. And so I don't fit into that part of it all that much. I basically I can't think of anything I have done just to be cool in a while. <laughs> I mean, I, um, and given you know where things are on the right these days, almost all of the peer pressure I get from every different way uh, is to go along more, either be more more committed to being anti-Trump all the time, or be more committed to defending Trump all the time. And uh, I'm perfectly hang, happy to hang out with the remnant. So. That's why the spaghetti strainer cod piece is on. That's right, um, and we're not even going to explain that to new co- to n- recent listeners. Uh, but thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, we will see you again soon, um, maybe even later this week. We'll always have Paris. Since you referenced Casablanca, I figured. Yeah. You must remember this: a kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Thank you for doing this. Sorry. Hey, anytime. How's it right? So easy. I'm just... I know. Now it's easy. Now it's easy. Yeah. Now it's it's so... I mean, like, that's it. Yeah, it's like Ilya Shapiro is all whiny that I'm having Adam White on a lot and (laughs) down the hall for me. Like if, if I need him, he's just there, you know.